Hi, everyone. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Very good to see you. Uh, so I had something cool happen this past week. I got to take uh, Grayson, my, uh, my four-year-old, to his first Thunder game ever. And uh, thanks to someone here in the church, very generous. And uh, we had a blast. Uh, and I wasn't sure if he was too young to take him to his first game because um, I won't ever mention Russell Westbrook. He always goes, yeah, he plays football, right? <laughs> or baseball. And he never says basketball, but he knows. He knows. And here's a pick from the game, actually. Uh, this is Grayson at the game. And uh, he saw the rumble toy, and he said, can I have one of those? And I said, of course. You're my only son. This is our first professional sporting event. You could have asked for anything, bud. I mean, and that's what you're going with. Okay. And uh, about one minute, 30 seconds left in the third quarter, right? We've been there a while. He says, now, which one's the thunder? Um, <clears throat> it was uh, baby steps, you know? I'm trying to raise him up in the way he should go. And um, after the game was over, I said, what was your favorite part of the game? And he said, uh, the, the dog show during halftime. And I go, all right. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty awesome. They were pretty awesome. And he actually loved it. And uh, ever since then, he's been, he's put down Paw Patrol. Now he's playing Thunder. You know, he's like, he's good with Brody and the cats. It's uh, been pretty good times. But today, I, I just bring that up for fun. But we are talking about family a little bit today. And whether that be, whether that be father-son moments, right? Or whether that be uh, marriage, kind of wherever you're at in your marriage and the good and bad of it. And the scripture that we're going to get into in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, we're going to kind of flow into both of them, talks a lot about our homes and how we're living with one another as wives and husbands and parents and children, and uh, even talks about what we do in the area of our work, which these sort of subjects are always a healthy thing to talk about. Not always a fun thing to talk about for some of us, um, but very healthy and before we get into what the scriptures say in these verses, uh, one thing, thing that struck me, and I, and I know I'm kind of ahead of us here in the sense that I've been preparing this week, but one thing that struck me about the passage we're about to read is a concept that some of us have probably heard this concept before, and it's the concept of, uh, of big thinking versus small thinking. And maybe you've heard those terms before, and it kind of gets thrown around in different, different ways, but I'm not necessarily talking about big dreams versus small dreams, right? I'm not talking about that type of big thinking and small thinking. I'm not even talking about whenever you're about to go out to eat and you're thinking, ah, maybe we should go small, like Chick-fil-A, you know, and someone else says, well, I was thinking like the melting pot, you know, that, go big or go home, you know. I'm not talking about like going from $1 sign to $3 signs on the Urban Spoon. I'm not doing that. I'm talking about whenever you have a very big, a very complicated, a very expansive, larger-than-life subject, right, and then you apply small thinking to it. And whenever you do that, um, it sort of mars everything, doesn't it? It sort of messes up what the, what the idea or the concept is all about because big thinking and big concept or big concepts and big ideas require big thinking, not small thinking. A good example, a good example would be, uh, I'm not trying to be too political, but a good example would be immigration, right? Immigration is this big, complicated, huge subject. Well, applying small thinking to immigration might sound something like this. You might use the word like wall, right? <laughs> to apply a small thinking concept. Now, now, here's the thing. We all know that immigration takes more than the idea of a wall. It, to be able to, it's a complicated, multi-layered subject that if you're going in, to get into it, you're going to have to consider all the things that what it means to be a nation of immigrants, yet protect our borders, which, by the way, I know that President Trump thinks it takes more than a wall. Just in case you're wondering if I really, what I think about President Trump, I'm going to leave that a mystery. I don't know what I, uh, so... Um, <laughs> Small thinking applies 
Small, but when small thinking applies uh, to big thinking, it comes out like nonsensical, non-logical answers to huge, expansive ideas. Are you with me? And this sort of thing happens with the scriptures all the time. Nonsensical, illogical answers to small thinking applied to big ideas. Uh, this huge, big, complicated concept of God and the reality of God and Jesus and the scriptures, right? Have you ever seen people take the scriptures, so to speak, and apply small thinking to them to an idea that's much larger that you are fully aware of, and yet you're going, you just don't get it, do you? And this passage we're about to read is an example of that. Um, People get stuck on one or two verses, so to speak, and like it isn't connected to something larger, something bigger. And so I want to get into some big thinking today, the big idea of what Paul is talking about for us to do and, and the heart and the purpose of behind what he's saying. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles, you can. We're going to be starting in verse 21. We're going to go all the way, on, way down to chapter 6, verse 9, which is a big chunk of Scripture that seems like a lot to swallow in one Sunday. But since we're under the banner of big thinking, we can do this. All right? He's speaking to a big idea. So if you come into this Scripture, I'm just going to give you a warning. If you come into the Scripture with a small thinking sort of mindset, if you come into this Scripture with narrow understanding, perhaps you just look at one verse, say the verse 522 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, a narrow, small thinking perspective can interpret this in a certain way, can it? It can interpret it that somehow wives are subservient to their husbands and lesser than, and perhaps over centuries if the church taught this way, it would lead to an understanding where women would never have the ability to be in authority over men, therefore they can never be in leadership, therefore they need to stay quiet, and it could lead to a culture that is oppressive towards women. I mean, this is just a hypothetical, right? It could lead to a a culture that's oppressive towards women and keeps the male-dominant kind of force over women, which oppresses them, in which they are not allowed to even have an equal view in culture, right? And so maybe small thinking applied to big ideas leads people down the wrong path. Are you with me? So that, my friends, is what we're talking about. Big thinking takes a small verse like that and doesn't just apply our small brains to them, but asks bigger questions like, why is this here? And what is happening before this verse and after this verse? And what is really going on? And what is Paul really up to? And I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of small thinking. Are you with me? Like, I, I just, it, it drives me nuts. So to hopefully today, we can start thinking big about this. And again, 521 through 69, it's a little bit about family. It's about wives and husbands and parents and children and employers and employees. And it's basically talking about our life, right? How we spend uh, most of our life and the relationships we have within our lives. And Paul writes about this. But before, since we're thinking so much about big thinking, I couldn't just dive into it. I had to kind of say, what's going on in this passage? And so, as I often do, I'm going to kind of zoom out a little bit. I'm going to back up and just say, where do we begin this whole idea? Well, we could back up further than where I'm going to go to, but I'm just going to go back to the beginning of chapter 5, all right? We're in chapter 5, verse 21. He's, he's kind of building an idea. And the first thing he says, the very first words, two words he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 is imitate God. We're going to have some slides up here. They're going to help us kind of walk through this. But he says, imitate God. For me, as I backed up and looked at this, this sort of idea is what sort of pulls these themes together that Paul is about to unload on us. He says, imitate God. And a few weeks ago, we actually did a message called Imitate God in which we talked about this very thing. 
And as a quick reminder, though, in chapter 4, before we talk about chapter 5, he says, the church, it needs all of you, meaning all of you personally. It needs all of you as a person to do your part. And then he talks about the old self and new self. You guys, if you've been with us, you remember these these conversations, and he talks about we're old and now we're new, and we can't just do it on our own. We've got to have the work of the Spirit with us. It's a tandem between us and our effort and the Spirit and what his effort does, and we become new. So in essence, after chapter 4, he says, would you imitate Jesus? Would you just imitate him? Would you just do the things that God would want you to do? Would you start trying to be who God's called you to be? Quit trying to be like them. Quit trying to dress like them. Quit trying to be successful like them. Just be who God has said for you to be. Would you just do what Jesus would do, right? WWJD, friends, that's all we need in life. So what does he say imitating God looks like? What does that mean? Well, in verse 2, he says, he says, live a life filled with love. And I'm just going to quickly kind of run through some things that he said. And if you haven't been with us, I'm just basically summarizing chapter 5, but he says imitating Jesus looks like living a life filled with love. Follow the example of Christ who lived a life that exemplified love in its purest form. Everybody from the outcast and the forgotten to his friends to, to, to even those enemies that he had in his life. And of course, to each of us, of this grace that was given to us on the cross and through, through the cross, a life filled with love. And imitating Jesus also means something else. He goes on in chapter 5 and he starts going through it. It means that you're going to get rid of darkness. Several verses, verse 8 being the key one, he says you're going you're gonna, to... You are supposed to be the light. You need to get rid of darkness. Get rid of the immorality in your life. Get rid of the sin in your life. Get rid of the idols in your life. Get rid of all these things. Get rid of darkness. And it's almost like he's giving us a wake-up call, isn't it? Like in verse 14, you remember that verse where he says, wake up, O sleeper, rise up. He's saying, wake up from this slumber that you're in. You need to become who I've called you to become. You need to become an imitation of Jesus in which you're going to get rid of all the old junk in your life that doesn't represent Christ. Get rid of it. And he says, okay, so this is what it's starting to look like. And if you, if you wake up and you start to understand what Jesus is saying, he's like, and you start understanding that he's trying to rise something up in you, he's going to put the lens of truth over your eyes so you can see the way the world's supposed to be. He says in verse 15, well then, as you do that, I want you to be wise, and I just want you to do what the Lord wants you to do, which is another way of saying imitate Jesus, right? Be wise. Do what the Lord, wants you to, what the Lord would want you to do. Live intentionally. And if you have Jesus you would, and you actually think about what you should do in a situation, well, you're always going to know what you ought to do. So if you're following the ways of love and you're getting rid of darkness and you're waking up and you're being wise and you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, well, he says, well, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is going to fill you up and it's going to lead you and it's going to guide you and it's going to comfort you and counsel you. And he says, and if you have the Holy Spirit with you, guess what? You're, you're just gonna, you're gonna start making music in your heart and you're gonna worship. This is, where, this is what he's, he's walking us through chapter five, right? This is what it's gonna look like if you imitate God. This is what it's gonna look like if you imitate God. He compels you, right? And he leads us forward. Now, big thinking understands that, that the scriptures and that Jesus and that God, the whole idea of it is actually intended to take us and lead us forward into the future, that the, that the scriptures aren't planted in the past, even though they were written in the past. The scriptures are actually planted in the future and who we're supposed to become. And so there's this idea, right, that Paul is giving to us. And this huge idea is this. If you want to follow Jesus, here's what it's going to look like. He keeps going in verse 21, and he, 
he gets specific. And now we're getting in today. He, talk, he talks about our house. And he says, you better live intentionally with your family. So I'm just going to read some verses. I can't, I'm not going to read all of the verses. You feel free to read 521 through 69 on your own. I'm just going to read some of the verses throughout this long passage, if that's all right. So in verse 21, we'll start there. He says, and further... So again, right on the heels of him saying, worship the Lord, make music in your hearts. He says, and further imitating God, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which is a big statement. And what does that mean? Well, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord for this is the right thing to do. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Children in the room, listen to verse 3 very carefully. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. In other words, mama brought you into this world, and she can take you out. <laughs> in all seriousness, this verse isn't just for people who are young, right? This is for children of all ages. <laughs> that is... That is the, that was my mother-in-law, just saying. So you know. <laughs> oh, goodness. Family. <clears throat> Good job on that. You did that perfect timing. We planned that. No, we didn't. Verse, chapter 6, verse 4 says, Parents, parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them, rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And then get this one in verse 7, slaves, mm, one of those contextual words that can be, small thinking can be applied, right? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not or don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same, listen to this, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. No favorites. We're all equal is what he's saying, right? So small thinking, by the way, just a little, small thinking can take a verse like this that uses the words slaves and masters and it can, it can then assume and use the Bible then as an endorsement, right? For the idea of slavery, which for, as we all know for centuries, the white American Western mine did, and it led the world for centuries. But big thinking takes a perspective is, what is God's word really saying about this? Is it okay that the New Testament says slaves and masters? Because what is God's really words, his, his words really saying? Well, it's saying, first of all, everything about slavery is rejected in the Bible, isn't it? Forms of uh, inequity and abuse. The Bible is all about, if you know the theme, one of the meta-narratives is setting the slave free, isn't it? So, Paul is simply speaking to the church. Here's the reality of the world that Paul was in. Half of the Roman Empire, half of the population of the Roman Empire, which is where they were, were slaves. So the church was full of slaves. Other words could be servants or bond servants. Or you see all these different words, and they all have slightly different meanings. But half of the Roman Empire was there, so his church was full of them. And even though he might want something better, it also had masters of those slaves in his church. And so he's speaking about a better way, one of love and servanthood. So Paul, back to our idea here, this whole thing of what he's doing in chapter 5, right? So let's talk about your house is what Paul essentially says. 
Imitate Christ in your house. As wives, husbands, children, parents, and then work. Slaves, masters. This idea of slaves, masters by theologians for years has been kind of translated into, really, that was work world back then, which is very much a, a, a tied to your house, by the way. But as employers and employees, and if you're paying attention, there's something very consistent happening in all these instructions that he gives about what a household that lives under the fellowship of Jesus looks like. He uses this word at the very beginning. He says, submit to one another. And then he goes, for wives, submit to your husbands, of course. But submission is alive in every one of these instructions to, to wives, to husbands, to parents, to children, and in our work situations. And submission isn't one of those uh, great words in the English language, is it? It's one of those words that has some baggage. We tell our pets, don't we, to sit. <laughs> sit, ubu, sit. <laughs> some of you got that. Uh, we have a dog. Um, he's a little guy. His name's Brody. I got a picture of Brody. Brody's weighing in a f <laughs> Brody's weighing in at four point eight pounds these days. Now Brody doesn't do anything we tell him to do. Nothing. He's a great dog. He doesn't chew things up. He's really quiet. He sits in your lap. He's a perfect dog for me because um, I don't like a lot of work. Um, but if I say, "Come here, Brody," he gives me one of those sideways dog looks, like. What you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't submit like a dog's supposed to. And so what I do every once in a while is I pick up one of his balls and I, and I throw the ball. But I don't actually throw it. I just act like I'm throwing it. And then he runs off. And I go, see, I'm smarter. And this is just, this is just a way, right, for me to exercise my dominance over my dog every few, every few days. And, and the reason I say that is I think in the same way this, I, this word submission sort of, even if we don't think about it much, sort of gets kind of put in the same category as if it's sort of like this exercise of dominance of some person over someone else. Like we're going to submit to that person and we're going to give them authority, but authority in a, in a, in a, in a heart, harsh way, so to speak, and we're going to give them some sort of power over us. And so it gets, it gets understood that way, and it's a loaded Sort of, so probably this whole wives submit thing has so much baggage because it feels like a loaded sentence, and depending on who you point the thing at, it could explode, right? It feels like harsh language to say this to one another, but it's not. Small thinking puts this idea of submission into control and dominance. Big thinking puts it under the banner of grace and peace. Grace and peace are the ultimate ways of Jesus, giving grace and establishing peace. Let me explain what I mean by this. So Paul, what does he say to the husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? Could you imagine if the, if, if the church had emphasized that sentence instead of wives submit over the centuries? Could you imagine how different the world may be? If, if for some reason the, the male teachers who were teaching the word emphasized their role as husbands more than emphasized the teaching of the submission of the wife. For centuries, um, this hasn't been emphasized. Because how did Christ love the church? I think we know this. It says it in the scripture, if you read it, he says that he gave his life up for the church, right? The bride of Christ, the church itself, received the ultimate act of love from Jesus when he gave his life for it. Meaning, 
his whole existence was for the purpose of dying for his bride. And I think, so what, what is it then? Is it, if submission seems like some sort of uh, power, sort of dominant sort of concept, if that's what it means, well then what is the role of the husband then that's supposed to die for his wife? This doesn't sound like control of dominance, this sounds like grace and peace. Meaning, grace and peace is a two-part action. Submission and love. You ever pull up to a stop sign, and at the same time another person pulls up to a stop sign, and then you wave them, and they wave you at the same time, and then no, you wave, you know, like, I submit to you, and they're like, no, I submit to you, I submit, I submit. And then finally one of you goes, uh, right at the same time, the other person goes, uh, and then you guys go, uh, 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 and then finally someone just gets upset, right? And they just kind of gun it through the intersection, like, this is so annoying. Submission without love is like that, isn't it? Someone gets annoyed eventually. Um, and so it's, it's a two-part sort of thing, and I, I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say it the same way. He doesn't say wives submit, husbands submit. He says wives submit, husbands love. And it's like there's two pieces to this that actually makes it this beautiful collision of two things because submission is often seen as giving in to someone, isn't it? Grace and peace, submission and love is actually the beautiful collision of two people giving everything to someone, isn't it? And so it's when, it's when two people actually say, you know what, I'm going to give everything of who I am to you. I'm not giving in in this argument. <laughs> I'm loving in this argument. I'm not letting you be in authority. I'm saying I'm trusting that if I submit and you love that we're actually going to experience grace with one another and we're going to establish peace on earth. Now that sounds like imitating Jesus, doesn't it? That we're living in, a, living in grace and establishing peace on earth. The very things that Jesus gets labeled with. The grace of Jesus and the peace of the world. So this kind of flows not just from marriage, doesn't it? It flows into parenthood and childhood. If a parent, if a parent raises up the child, and all they can do, but the, but the child doesn't honor the parent, doesn't obey the parent. What happens? Brokenness, right? Or, or put in the context, of course, of, of work. If an, if an employee does everything they can to serve their employer, but the employer doesn't honor them, and they actually abuse them in some way, well, brokenness once again occurs. But if the employee serves, and the employer doesn't say, hey, you work for, but maybe you work with me, and together we're doing something that matters in the sense of whatever industry they're in. Well, something beautiful again happens. There's like a collision of grace and peace, grace giving to one another, peace being established in the relationship, right? And peace reigns, and grace is given. And so what we're seeing and all this is Paul is like unwrapping this, hey, there's going to be a relationship of submission and love in every relationship we have. And sometimes it doesn't matter. Well, I'm not the one saying it. There's going to be someone that says, I'm going to submit and you're supposed to love. And if together we do our parts, it's going to end in grace and peace. But if you don't do your part and I don't do my part, it's going to end in brokenness. Now, Paul says something that I think is interesting here. So he's going through this whole idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Then he stops for this number, this, this long section on our homes. Why? Doesn't it make sense, right? It makes sense because this is actually 
pretty much their life. Now, the average American, just so you know, works between 40 and 45 hours a week. They spend 50 to 55 waking hours away from work. That's kind of depressing. And then five hours commuting back and forth from home to work. That's the average number. Some of you are like, well, man, I mean, I work like 10 hours, whatever it is for you, right? So, it stands to reason that Paul would speak to, and he takes such amount of time on the thing that we spend the majority of our time in. Now, I know not every, time, every moment of our time that we're not at work are we with family, but we're maybe doing fun activities or whatever. But the, the, the dominant thing for so many of us that we spend the majority of our waking hours in is either at work or with our families in some form or fashion. And he says, we got to get this right. And Jesus says something very similar to this whole idea. And, I, and we always love to go back to the words of Jesus because Paul's just an echo of Jesus, by the way. He's just, he's just a shadow of him. He's just like, I'm, I'm repeating what I've heard or what I've heard others say that Jesus said. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Now, these are the last few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. You guys know what the Sermon on the Mount is? Um, kind of foundational teachings of Jesus that he gives about life. And this is actually, now I don't know if this, we don't know for sure the order, if, if, if Matthew wrote these in the order he liked, or if this was actually some sort of collection, collection of teachings, and, and Jesus ends with this one. But this is the last one in the written text of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is interesting because it's the end cap to everything he's just said about life. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, which words? The words that have just been spoken for the last two chapters of Matthew. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Now, if you remember some of the words that Paul said, right? Do what the Lord wants you to do. Be wise, right? These are sounding familiar. It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against and beat that, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because, it had, because it, had, it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, listen to this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. It, again, we didn't read all the words today, but he talks about being fools in chapter 5. And he talks about, instead, be wise. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law, which, once again, Jesus was different, Right? He taught as one with authority. So what is Paul saying to the church? He's saying the same thing. If you imitate Jesus, if you live wise, if you put into the practice that the things he said, it's a better way of living. Your house will not fall. And when I used to read the scripture, I used to think it was more about, you know, building your life on the rock and being wise and making wise choices and decisions and all these sorts of things. But when I put it in the context of my house, my, my literal house, the home that I'm building with my family that my kids are in, that my, me, and, me and Christy share, and I think, what, what is my house really truly built upon? And you have to ask yourself the same question. What is my house really built upon? And some of you are going, well, I don't have wife and kids yet, or whatever, or husband, or... Listen, I'm saying 
not only this for future tense, but I'm saying present tense, he's talking about everything in your life that is about your, uh, how you spend your waking hours, your work, your, the parents you do have. If you're saying, uh, and some of us, I knew when I was writing this, I think some of us say, Tim, this is all well and good, but you don't understand like the house I'm in or the parents that I have or the spouse that I have. Like, I'm in, but they're not. Like, I'm in on this, but they aren't. So what do I do then? And, and I would just say, I'm not asking you to put your blinders on. You know what I mean? I, I get it if there's a situation where you're saying, I'm trying to do what the Lord wants me to do, but the person I'm trying to do it with isn't. You don't have to put your blinders on, but I would say, because obviously brokenness, it's going to require both sides of the people to want to restore it, uh, both sides of the situation. But I would encourage you that if you're in that sort of situation, to not lose hope, one, to continue to trust the Lord and what he wants you to do. I know that sounds really simple and cliche, but it's so true. And in that process, you trust the Lord because big thinking, I'm just saying, always trust the Lord. That's what it does. That's one of the things we can rely on is we can trust God if we do what he's called us to do. Big thinking considers all of these sorts of things. It understands that Jesus changes everything, even a situation that seems hopeless. It understands that we live in grace and we establish peace. Small thinking approaches Jesus, and this is, this is just kind of a sidebar, but if you've ever heard this, small thinking approaches Jesus like he's fire insurance, doesn't it? Small thinking comes to Jesus because I want my get-out-of-hell card, and then I can go live like hell other days, right? That's small thinking. Small thinking approaches faith like it's a list of behavior modification do's and don'ts. That's small thinking. But big thinking considers what the scripture is saying about your life. What's it actually saying? About my existence, about who I am, about who I'm supposed to become. The people in my life, the people who brought me into this world, the people that God said, I'm giving you so you will not be alone husband and wife, and the people that I'm bringing into the world, and the people I'm spending the better part of my day with in this world. He says some things about it that we should consider, shouldn't he? So big thinking doesn't allow our life to be absent of what God's word says about these things so that we can actually build our house on the rock. So here's what I want to do. Let's go back to this idea, imitate God. So I'm going to take God, I gave you all these sort of ideas that go with it, but perhaps what's really going on is I want to encourage you to consider something practical this morning. Your life as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, and your life in your work. And we're about, we're about done, but this is, this is one of those things that I felt like was a very simple moment for us to look at what God's word says, to look at our life, and to ask ourselves some good questions. Because perhaps the scripture is really just saying this. It isn't saying all this baggage that we tried to apply in small thinking ways to these little verses. The scripture is saying, I want you to imitate God as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, and in your work. To where you would be a person that would live a life filled with love. That you would be a person that would act grateful and would worship God because of these things. That you would be a person that would be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it would flow into the relationships you have in your life, that you would be a person, right, that would live wise and do what the world, Lord wants you to do in these 
relationships. Living in grace and peace. And here's what I know is I know anytime we come into a body of believers or anytime, even the crowd this size, which is, you know, not the biggest crowd in the world, but it's a big enough crowd to say this. I know that there's some marriages that are struggling. I know it. I know there's marriages struggling right now where you need to hear this simple truth. Wives, submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I know that sounds like so bible because it is, right? But what I'm saying in that is it's a two-part act of grace and peace. Where two lives experience the beautiful collision of two people giving everything to each other. There's no winners and losers because love's the only thing that wins. And some of us need to hear that very thing in our marriage right now. No one's winning, no one's losing. Together, love will win with us. Some of us are struggling as parents, and I don't know about you as a parent, but parenting is one of the toughest things that you do in life. But it's also one of the greatest, we know that too. But what I know is that only the Holy Spirit, I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to parent, because only the Holy Spirit can give me the wisdom I need, can give me the patience I need, can give me the ability to not be selfish, right? I don't know, I've heard two times this week as a parent, like, we, yeah, I was just reminded it's not about me. It's not about me. You're right, it's not. It's not about us. Some of us are struggling as, as children, and I thought about this one for a while, and we should probably talk about this for a long time, but maybe for you, for whatever reason, you and your parent, there's a brokenness there you resent your parent or maybe one of, one of your parents or both of your parents and maybe they weren't perfect. Maybe they were far from it. Um, every case is different. And I know some of us are in counseling. Some of us need counseling. Like that's a big one, isn't it? But maybe today what you could hear is something that will lead you forward one step at a time and say, how can I extend grace or establish peace with my parents? It's a way forward for you. And some of us are struggling in work, and I talk to people all the time about this one too, and that they're unhappy in their work, or they're unhappy with their boss, or they're unhappy with those they lead, and it goes on and on and on. And, and what I would say about that is, is simply this. Are you doing all you can to honor those that you work with? Because as it's been said many times by many people, you may be the only Jesus that the people at your workplace may see. And you have the opportunity to live in grace and establish peace. And if you're saying that still doesn't work, well, then I'd say find a situation that does then. Find a situation that does. If it's, if it's a brokenness that can't be restored and you're just like, I can't find a path to peace. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose one of those four as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, or in your work. I want you to choose one of those four that you need the ways of Jesus to flow in and through you so that you can see change and that you can experience more grace and peace. I want you to choose one of those four. I'm saying it again, right now. Choose one of those four that you need the ways of Jesus to flow in and through you so that you can see the needed change and you can experience more grace and peace. So here's my question. If, if you've picked one of the four, go ahead and nod your head. Say, I've got it. Go ahead, do it. Good. 
Should we just pray the Holy Spirit over this? Let's do it. Father, we just pray right now. You just brought to mind something in our lives that we need you in. You just brought to our minds the thing that, Lord, we need to just take your word as it is and say, Lord, we need to, to, to think about grace and peace as maybe a spouse. And so I pray for any marriages in here right now that may be struggling, that maybe that maybe they're struggling. Maybe one spouse feels like it's struggling and the other one doesn't. Uh, there's all sorts of situations that exist right here in this room with marriages. And I pray right now your Holy Spirit poured out on them that wives and husbands would figure out what it means to live in grace and peace, that they'd figure out what it means to experience submission to one another, love for one another, that they would understand their role as a husband or a wife, and that, Father, we would see peace and grace. Father, for anybody in here, maybe in the parent-child relationship, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on there that's so difficult, but also so rewarding. There's so many great relationships between parents and children. Thank you for those. For those that maybe are struggling right now, God, I pray that, Lord, if it's the parent, that you would give them the wisdom to see what it is they ought to do. If it's the child, that you would give them the eyes to see maybe something they've never seen before, to understand their parent in a new way and to live in grace so that they can see peace. And so, Father, I pray right now over that. And then, Lord, for so many that are in their situations with their work that are challenging, that are frustrating, or that they just want to see change and breakthrough. Lord, I just pray right now, just a like I just said, a breakthrough for that person. That for any of us in here that need your hand to push us through some barrier, some wall, some, some, some lack of peace in our work relationships, Father, would you help us with that? We understand that these relationships are some of the most critical, crucial relationships that we deal with every day of our lives. And so, Father, I pray that, Lord, we would imitate you imitate Christ so our houses will not crash and fall when the winds come and the storms come in life, but they'll stand strong through whatever life brings. So God, we love you, we trust you, and we pray your Holy Spirit over this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.